Hi, Martin. How are you? I'm fine. Hi, Jane. How are you doing? I always try and find a suitable, intelligent quote to start our podcast with, to sort of to, to give us some inspiration, set us off on our journey of discovery. Today, you'll be glad to hear, is no different. It was a bit of a struggle to find a, a, a quotation or some words of wisdom about salad leaves, but I think I may have found one from perhaps the number one philosopher on the planet today, Mr. Homer Simpson. <laughs> I love him. Basically, Homer is hosting a barbecue and his daughter, Lisa, asks why he can't have a party where they don't serve meat. And Homer's response is very simple. You don't win friends with salad, Lisa. Ah, well, we're going to prove that wrong, aren't we, Martin? You certainly can. If you do it right, you can win lots of friends. I actually do love salad. Uh, You know, I happily munch down a load of leaves, and I do so in this episode as well. But do you have a favourite dish that focuses on those leaves? Do you know, this thing I think I love the best is just a simple green salad with lots of different leaves in it. So... We've got a polytunnel and we're right up in the northeast of Scotland. So we haven't got the longest growing season and it's not the warmest place to grow leaves. But every winter, just before sort of late autumn, I always plant some salad leaves and herbs and it keeps us going all through the winter. And then this time of year in the spring, they're just as the polytunnel gets warmer, they're just really bursting with life. And so this time of year when there's nothing else growing, I've got these amazing leaves, so eating those with a little bit of olive oil and balsamic or a simple French dressing is my perfect way to eat salad. In this episode of The Science Behind Your Salad, we're going back to the heart of a salad, the leaves. Lola Rosso, watercress, endive, freezy, iceberg, little gem, loose leaf, lamb's lettuce, oak leaf, radicchio, romaine, butterhead lettuce, and rocket to name just a selection of a wide variety. Salad leaves often get a raw deal as the afterthought or a garnish in a dish. An episode of the sitcom Seinfeld features a scene where Jerry is in a restaurant and asks for just a salad and the words echo around to haunt him. So today, we're going to prove once and for all that salad leaves are more than simply something to push around your plate once the main event has been eaten. We're going to make salad leaves the main event. And first of all, to give salad the boost they deserve, I'm joined by Rob Parks. Rob is a head chef in London. So what do you do and why do you love salad? Uh, so I'm currently head chef at a restaurant down in South East London called Copper and Ink in Blackheath. Uh, we opened just over three years ago now and it's not been plain sailing, I'll be honest with you. I don't think there's ever an easy time to run a restaurant, uh, but certainly through the pandemic um, that had its own challenges. Everything in this country is just starting to turn green. You know, we've got asparagus season coming up. That comes along, we've got English peas after that. These are all great ingredients to find in a salad. That That's what gets me excited at this time of year. Yeah, and I can just tell that you, you, you love fresh. You know, it's very clear that you love fresh. And um, what would you do to pep up your salad? Salad goes hand in hand with dressing. I think, you know, it's, it's only half of the equation until it's sort of dressed. Fresh herbs are a massive part of most of the salads that I put together as well. It's a really 
good way of injecting lots of great flavour into salads, you know, fresh mint leaves, basil leaves torn in. You need acid, I think that really sets it off. Don't dress your salads too far in advance though, you know, you really want to be getting that acid on the leaves at the very, very last minute, keep them nice and, and fresh and stop them from going limp. But yeah, acid and a little bit fat, so um, extra virgin olive oil. And what are your favourite salad leaves and why? Oh gosh, favourite salad leaves. Um, I think that, you know, your traditional lettuces are really overlooked sometimes. So your little gem or baby gem lettuce, you know, in terms of the crispness, the crunch of it, I think is difficult to beat and it can be versatile as well. You know, there's a, a traditional French garnish called uh, Petit Poil la Francais and oftentimes you'll have like a piece of sautéed uh, little gem lettuce through that as well just to show its versatility. But I love Rocket because it really delivers that impactful, powerful, punchy, peppery flavour that you tend not to get with other salad leaves. I think some people find it a little bit overwhelming, but I think as a chef, you know, you're always focused on flavour and what can really make an impact. And there's no doubt that uh, Rocket does that for me. So welcome to the science behind your salad brought to you by BASF. In this series, we go in search of the best ingredients and we tell the stories of those striving to provide the freshest, tastiest produce for our salad bowls. And we explore the ways in which farmers can continue to provide food for the planet in the face of ever-growing uncertainty and pressure from climate change, also from population growth and now from global conflict. So how did we begin to eat salad leaves rather than other kinds of leaves? To give us a history of the crop, I'm extremely lucky to be joined by Rebecca Rupp. Rebecca is an author and food writer and writes for National Geographic's food blog, Hi, Becky. It's so good to see you over there in Vermont. And you, Jane, up there in Scotland. But first of all, we discussed a rather unique job carried out by a celebrity of the day, a gentleman named Monsieur d'Albignac, who plied his trade amongst the high society in London during the 18th century. A French gourmet named Briat Savarin wrote a book called The Physiology of Taste. And in it, he includes the story of Monsieur d'Albinac, who became known famous for salad dressing. And apparently some, at some point in the early 1800s, he visited England, was sitting all by himself having a roast beef dinner, when a neighboring table, noticing that he was a Frenchman and therefore knew everything about sauces, uh, asked him to come dress their salad. So he did. And subsequently, he was invited to a dinner party to dress salad there. And salad dressing turned into a profitable occupation. So soon he had, he had a carriage. He went to all the best parties carrying a, a fitted case, like a doctor's case, it sounds like, you know, with all his vinegars and oils and egg yolks and um, spices and all the makings of a delicious salad dressing. He made a fortune and eventually retired, went back home to France and lived happily ever after, as far as we know, on salad dressing. How much do we know about early lettuce cultivation? Actually, it depends how early you want to go. Uh, what we do know is that practically everything that we grow in our gardens and fields today had been domesticated by about 3000 BCE. The ancient Egyptians were growing lettuce about 6,000 years ago. And we know that from tomb paintings. And we know that it was kind of a romaine lettuce 
because it's a it's tall, spiky stuff. We know the Greeks and Romans ate salad. And where did those leaves originate from? Do you think, Becky? It looks like it's uh, it originated from an earlier Mediterranean lettuce, probably a bitter, um, spiny, not quite so palatable stuff. So probably no surprise that the Mediterraneans still eat a lot of leaves. Actually, all of us are starting to eat more leaves. You know, leaf consumption has had a real uptick in the last decades. We're up to something like 30 pounds of leaves a year. And 30 pounds of leaves is a lot of leaves. And, and culturally, leaves play an important part in our food history as well, don't they, Becky? There are all kinds of stories, not all of which can be proven to be true. But, but we do know that the, the Greeks used to carry pots of fresh lettuce in a celebration of Apollo. Uh, the Romans had lots of recipes for salads. A lot of them come from a cookbook that was attributed to Apicius. We're not quite sure which Apicius. Uh, there were several gourmets of that name. It looks like it dates from about the first century CE. And there are two copies of the oldest versions of this cookbook. One's at the New York Academy of Medicine, one's in the Vatican. But it's clear that the Romans were a little nervous about salad. There's a recipe for one that's called harmless salad, which is harmless because they added figs and honey to the lettuce. People were a little nervous about lettuce because it was viewed as an anti-aphrodisiac. If you wanted sex, don't eat lettuce. So there were a lot of warnings about, you know, be cautious when you eat your lettuce. It was, it was supposed to put you to sleep. And there's actually some truth to lettuce as a soporific, and that's due to the, the lettuce latex. You know, that milky goo that comes out of the bottom of the cut stems? Its latex contains enough alkaloids and polymers that it does have a put-you-to-sleep effect. It was actually used medicinally up through World War I to help hospital patients get a good night's sleep. I personally have never noticed this. I don't think salad knocks me out, but the Egyptians thought lettuce was hot stuff. You know, you, you ate this if you wanted a night on the town. A guy named Samarini did some research on why on earth was lettuce in Northern Europe considered an anti-aphrodisiac and a soporific. But in Egypt, it was like, wow, I, you know, this is, this is dedicated to the god of fertility. We're going all the way with lettuce. It turns out it was two completely different lettuces. And the lettuce that the Egyptians were talking about was this stuff called prickly lettuce. It's got a quite a concentration of these cocaine-like alkaloids. So if you can choke enough of this stuff down, it's a high. Do we know when they first started to be cultivated, domesticated, and give me a flavor of how those leaves have developed and evolved as, as we've taken more interest in, in lettuce as a food? But certainly the earliest lettuces were leafy. Uh, the heading lettuces, you know, the big fat, iceberg-type lettuces that supermarkets are so fond of because they ship very well, um, came in sometime in the Middle Ages. 
though possibly with some difficulty because I came across a gardening book from the 1500s that has instructions as to how to how to get these new heading lettuces. The instructions involved stamping on your budding leaf lettuce plants to encourage them to curl up into balls. If you wanted red lettuce or if you wanted sweet lettuce to water your lettuce seedlings with red wine. So you'd think that those instructions would have gone away very rapidly when you discovered that stamping on your seedlings really didn't produce head lettuces. In 1699, a guy named John Evelyn, who kept a marvelous diary that he started as a schoolboy in the 1640s and kept for the next 60 years. So he covered a lot of really juicy stuff, like the Great Fire of London, the beheading of Charles I, but he was also very interested in gardening and in salad. So he wrote a book called Aceteria, which is supposedly the first book ever published that was entirely devoted to salad and nothing but salad. And he was very restrictive as to what constituted a salad. Green leaves, lettuces and herbs with a vinegar and oil dressing, the pure salad, was a leafy salad. And then he follows this up with a list of like 70-something salad ingredients in alphabetical order, which were all acceptable and had to be picked and put into a, a basket with compartments so that you could next assemble your salad. So I'm beginning to yearn for some of that fresh, crisp, sweet crunch. Salad leaves are a staple amongst gardeners and allotment owners alike. They are easy to grow and can be on your plate in just a few weeks after sowing. If you can get them in early, before the slugs, you're lucky. But to grow at scale is a very different matter. Our consumption of leaves globally is huge and the scope of locations in which lettuce leaves appear knows no boundaries. From the iceberg in your Big Mac to the rockets scattered over your artisan pizza, and everywhere in between. So we eat a lot of it, sometimes without even knowing or noticing. To meet this demand, the leaves are grown in huge quantities around the world, from the vast fields of lettuces in Salinas, California, and Yuma, Arizona, to the mind-blowing quantities cultivated in China. Currently responsible for 16 million metric tons of lettuce produced each year, which is half of every lettuce eaten. In China, lettuce is seen as a symbol of wealth and good luck. But as a new technology is emerging, so the growing methods are changing. In many cases, the crop is grown, loaded into trucks and trains and shipped all over countries and continents. But that may be all set to change. I spoke to Johan van Zee and Peter Doze. They are both based in the Netherlands and are working on new varieties and ways to access the market. If all goes to plan, gone will be the expensive trips snaking around the country to deliver crops weeks after harvesting. The main aim is to get the crop to the consumer and their plates within days, if not hours of picking. And they do so by pioneering the use of amazing greenhouse technology and innovations in breeding. The basics that we breed for are a good yield, but next to this also, um, for the consumer it's getting more and more important that it has a good flavor, it has a good bite, a good texture which also means that the product has a good shelf life. That altogether needs to be combined in a specific line, which ends up as a variety. On, on average, it takes between four and five years nowadays with a, with a new 
breeding techniques to go from cross to trial one stage in, in leather breeding in our company. What we also see now more and more is that, that food is produced locally, high-tech conditions, so grown in glass houses. And for that purpose, your lettuce needs less water. Uh, diseases like mildew, for instance, which is a, a real threat in open field, has no chance in these conditions, which also means that the grower has to apply much less fungicides. And also your water use efficiency is much higher. There's a constant dialogue between both of us, but also between me and marketing and sales to really understand from each other what's happening in the market so that we can steer early enough in the breeding process because Johan explained it, it takes maybe six to seven years before, before we can bring a variety to the market. If everything goes smooth and it's very promising, then two years after I get the material, it can be on the market. Growing in greenhouses with high-tech tools means that you can control the conditions uh, much better. So also the genetics travel much better around the globe because you can make the conditions fit. They're much more uniform across the board than they are in open field. In open field you depend on local climate conditions, weather conditions, local soil types. All that doesn't apply to hydroponics in greenhouses. There's heating. There, nowadays there's cooling capacity to maintain the right temperature. There's supplemental light installed, LEDs or HPS light, high pressure sodium. But also a screen to maintain the greenhouse climate, to keep the temperature down a little bit or the humidity under control. And the combination of all these technical tools make that you can maintain a stable and perfect greenhouse climate. Most important pest or disease in lettuce is, is downy mildew. So that's a fungus that grows on the leaf. And it only grows on the leaf if the leaf is wet. Many times that the leaves in open field are wet. So this fungus has many chances to attack a lettuce. If you move indoors to hydroponics, the water comes from underneath. The leaf tissue never gets wet. That means that downy mildew has no chance to grow on that leaf anymore. There's a lot of opportunities to cut out waste. So if you can grow a plant that is way smaller, but you can use 100% of the leaves, that is a big gain on, uh, on food waste. If you combine that with the production indoors, closer to the consumer, so we don't have to transport it, the consumer buys a fresher product, so he will eat all of it. The work being done by Peter and Johan is being adopted and adapted by Little Leaf Farms, a US-based leaves producer. Across the Atlantic from the Netherlands, Peter Sleeman is their head grower. Yeah, uh, you know, you know what the fun part is. I'm really a tomato grower. Uh, I grew uh, peppers, hot peppers, tomatoes, uh, radish, lettuce, beans. Uh, you know, I grow a crazy amount of crops. Little Leaf Farms is based in Massachusetts, about an hour away from Boston. Their website features such inspiring recipes like blood orange and beet salad with toasted walnuts and goat's cheese, French potato and green salad, curry chicken lettuce cups. Peter is very proud of his lettuce crop. Johan van Zee told me it's the best salad in North America. I've no doubt about that. I ask him what made it so special. You know, it's the first lettuce in the US that stays fresh. It's a, it's a combination of, a, of an iceberg and a romaine. So it has the, it has the crunch and then it's sweet eye. It's not that bitter eye that lettuce can be yeah and the americans just love it they just love it you don't you, you don't even need dressing if you have a little bit of olive oil 
and vinegar, it's already enough. Every day we harvest exactly the same size plants and, and, and we know exactly how much germination percentage we have. We know exactly how fast the plants are growing in what layer and in what day. The amount of data that Little Leaf Farms is collecting over the last six years is ridiculously, yeah, it's really, it's the next level. I never did this in Holland. So what's a Dutchman doing on the east coast of the USA? No, yeah, it's pretty awesome. We want to be out of the city because we think it's madness to uh, to have all the truck movements that you have with a facility uh, in a city. So we are we are not urban. We are close enough to be close to the main distribution centers and far enough away to have the cheaper land. People can live with in, in normal price houses. We want to grow ladders from, from, from Maine to Miami. That's our goal uh, for, for the next couple of years. And, and, you know, I have to say we are, you know, we are on the right path. Where there's lettuce or any of the other varieties of salad leaves, there is inevitably something trying to kill or eat it. The brains at BASF have been working on various solutions to protect the lettuce crop so that it arrives on our tables, bug or pest free and in the best condition possible. Dr. Reinhard Steele is from BSF and he told me how they tackle some of the problems lettuce leaves are facing using a biofungicide called Cerifel. Biofungicides are formulations of living organisms that are used to control the activity of plant pathogenic fungi and bacteria. The concept of biofungicides is based upon observations of natural processes where beneficial microorganisms hinder the activity of plant pathogens. So it's all very natural. There's one called white mold and one called grey mold, uh, which are really um, visibly rots also because uh, if they're getting heavily into the into the lettuce, they, they just rot away and it's it's definitely not something you can or want to eat anymore. Uh, the whole disease starts with the white rot early from the soil. It produces spores then on the surface of the soil and then from there on goes into the lettuce leaves. The grey mold is something which is flying really as a spore over the air onto the plants. You can lose 60-80% of the crop totally uh, and, and uh, that's of course then economically 100% damage because you don't even harvest anymore if, if so many heads are, are affected. You have to prevent that it starts getting into the crop, starting in the crop. Plant protection is the very last step in preventing a disease uh, coming up. And then Cerifel is something, despite that it is officially a fungicide, it's still called a biofungicide or biological, uh, because it's just a living organism. And this living organism it's a bacteria, and bacteria are the natural opponents of fungi. These diseases I mentioned, these are fungi, so therefore you have a natural opponent which you apply on your crop from the very beginning on. They establish there, they multiply there, and keep with that the incoming spores of the fungi under control and stop really that they, they start infecting. It's a game changer as part of a philosophy changer. And it's an important tool really to enable the farmer thinking really holistic again. So that's how the crop is growing today and how the crop breeders and product developers are forging ahead with new ways of growing. But what if you could get even closer to your customers and completely control every aspect of your crop? Sounds like a dream world. 
but in London, they are bringing the farm of the future very much to life. Zero Carbon Farms have a large farm in central London. Yes, that's right. The farm is in the UK's capital city, but it's rather unconventional. Our producer, Martin, paid them a visit. So this is like your, your journey to work every morning. You come and press the button on the lift, do you? Yeah, this is my, my kind of daily, daily commute, if you want. Make my way 35 metres down to the, to the farm. And then, yeah, we uh, start farming. And you wouldn't have any idea driving up Clapham High Street? You really wouldn't. So there's two levels downstairs. The upper basement level is at 33 metres below the ground, and the lower basement level would be at 35. So it's a war shelter, basically, a bomb shelter from, yeah. from the Blitz. Yeah, exactly, a deep war shelter. You know, you had people who would make their way down these stairs whenever the air raid siren went off. And so each of the staircases leads to one of those two basement levels. One is the upper basement, one is the lower basement. And you would have beds for, I believe, about 4,000 people on each level. So in order to go inside, I'm guessing I will have to put some yes. kit on to this protect a, the, the food from, from yeah. me. <laughs> exactly. So food safety is really important for us. So... It is going to have to be a, a hairnet job. We'll do a lab coat and we'll do wellies as well and we'll wash our hands before we go in. So in conventional agriculture, uh, you may only get, depending on what you're farming or what you're trying to cultivate, two, three, four. At the very higher end of the spectrum, you have these kind of ephemeral seeds. You'll get to six or seven seasons a year. Um, here, we're able, you know, given that we've kind of eliminated the seasonal aspect of the temperatures and the environment, we can do up to 160 seasons a year. And what that means is that throughout, you know, the growing season, as it were, we can stagger our crops through our farm and uh, and have them coming out, you know, every week, every other week. Uh, and it really depend depending on what you're growing, it really it's up to us really how we want to stagger that controlling of the environment you know making sure that temperature relative humidity they're constant or that you know they only fluctuate when we want them to that's obviously a, the, the biggest thing pests or any kind of uh, contaminant or anything like that we're obviously in a much better position to control those and some of the controls that we've gone through already that's what helps to limit limit things like larvae coming in any kind of pest you know mice slugs none of that stuff makes it down here so where we've come to now is kind of like in the middle of what would have been the, the shelter. This is it. This is the lobby area. And it's, it's, it gives an idea of how long it is. The main tunnel that we just came through, that's yeah. actually the shortest tunnel, it's 84 metres. Wow. The next one, which is actually the one that our farm is in, is 92 metres. There's actually two more tunnels after that. And the one after that is 100 metres. And the one after that one is 117. Wow. So it stretches away underneath Clapham Lime Street. Well, that's it. I mean, if you think that there's... This whole tunnel, which is you know nigh on 400 meters, yeah. and then there's one that runs parallel, another 400 meters, wow. and then they're both on two levels. Yeah. So you're talking about you know 1600 meters, about a kilometer of tunnel length, uh, plus all the mezzanines and all the side rooms and the lobby, like the one that we're standing in. It gives you an idea of just actually how huge this place is. Right. So I'll take you through here. You might feel it getting a bit warmer. Yeah. So let me just turn off these fans. This is our propagation tunnel, so usually the lights are off all of the time. Uh, so what we're essentially trying to emulate or recreate in here is what it would be like in maybe a, a warm southern Mediterranean country, a couple of centimetres below the surface of the soil in spring. On average, our crops will stay in here for about three days. But it's very quick. Is that as quick as it would be 
outside, for instance? Yeah, I mean, I think on average, yes, you're looking at maybe twice as fast in here, but it really depends. Different crops take to this kind of treatment differently to others. What I found is that we have difficulty with things like spinach. Spinach like to be cold germinated. Into the farm now. So this is a tunnel like any of the other ones. Yeah. We have massive fans that will blow air all the way down the farm. Wow, so what Tommy's just done is turn on an array of lights which are pink. And it looks beautiful. I mean, it looks amazing. It's like some kind of... You'll hate me for saying this, I'm sure, but it looks kind of sci-fi. It's very sci-fi. Yeah. Is yeah. there anything special about the lights that you use? Yeah, so lighting profiles, is that, that's really kind of like... Uh, that, that, that's the hill that we're going to die on here in this, uh, in this uh, hydroponic kind of area. You want the water to be really good, so it's worth mentioning that as well. But the lights here, you know, these are not state-of-the-art lights. You know, these are... They were probably state-of-the-art about six or seven years ago when they went in. They look pink because they have a good balance of blue and red parts of the light spectrum. Yeah. Towards the far end of the light spectrum, what I mean is like past 700 newton meters, you'll get far red light. And far red seems to have this incredible effect on growth. There's row upon row of these trays yeah. of various stages of growth. That's of, it. And this is a really wow. great illustration actually of how quickly things grow. If you look at this, uh, let's take our garlic chive for example. You see garlic chive over here, so that was transferred in just a couple of days ago. And if you look at this one, which is just a week old, that's already, you know, five, six, seven centimeters, and that's almost ready to go, basically. Yeah. If you look at this one, which is four days old, what is that, six or seven centimeters high? Yeah, yeah. really nice. Very healthy looking. Very healthy looking. This is actually a really, really nice type of uh, Rafana sativa, so it's a yeah. radish. If you try that, it's our pink stem radish, you let me know what you think. That is sweet and peppery all together with a nice crunch that's it so as i walk through there's broccoli there's peas there's coriander there's sunflower i love coriander <laughs> we're very pleased with where we've arrived and we are very excited for where we'll be going so actually out the back of this tunnel yeah kind of see it goes about another 40 meters yeah. or so so at the end of that wall is going to be brought down and we'll go another 500 meters wow. Wow. 500 of, of growing meters. space throughout the rest of that tunnel and actually into some of the parallel tunnels. So at that point, we'll have over a, a thousand meters squared of growing space. And so we'll hopefully do probably about 150 tons a year of produce. The good thing about this whole operation is the fact that you're very close to your market. Very, very close. And that's something that we're very, very proud of. You know, these days, if you go to your local produce section of your supermarket, anything that you get will usually have a sticker saying Spain or South Africa or Namibia or Kenya, wherever it is. These can be on the plate, how quickly? These, I mean, if you are going to buy it from one of our local independent grocers, let's say on Wednesday morning you decide at quarter to 10 or, or 10 o'clock in the morning to go to your grocer and pick up one of our punnets, that could have been harvested and it could be on your plate probably in about three hours. But the future of leaves isn't just going underground. In the future, we may look up at the skies. Here's Becky Rapp again to take us to a new level of salad production. I know they're now growing, successfully growing red lettuce on the International Space Station. I love it. Apparently the seeds come in little packets packed in there with fertilizer and soil and it's strapped onto a heated pad so it won't go floating about in the uh, International Space Station. Water is injected and there they have it, lettuce. They've also recently done uh, some studies that show that the lettuce that they're growing on the space station is just as nutritious as the lettuce that's grown on the ground on Earth. 
which is also a plus for the astronauts. A lot of vitamin A in lettuce. And the darker the color of the leaves, the more vitamins that you've got in there. Leaves form an important yet often underappreciated part of our diets. They are a key ingredient to our salad bowls that are often dominated by their bolder, brasher rivals, such as tomatoes and onions. But the world trade in lettuces is worth $2.93 billion per year. And some of the flavors now being produced are spectacular, from bitter to sweet, crisp and peppery. What is clear is that those working on new varieties and growing techniques have similar goals to create a standout crop whilst also reducing their emissions and aiming to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. Being close to market to cut down on transport and costs is a huge target and allows the salads to reach the consumer much sooner than previously and therefore much fresher. But once again, as with all our crops, the key is to maintain the flavour intensity and it is clear that this is being achieved by farmers and crop breeders when it comes to lettuces, whatever the variety. Thank you for listening to The Science Behind Your Salad with me, Jane Craigie. Next time, we'll be diving into the world of canola, also known as oilseed rape. Thanks for listening.